New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is proudly sponsored by Designs for Health. Designs for Health is a family-owned professional brand offered exclusively to healthcare professionals and their patients. For over 25 years, they've been the healthcare professional's trusted source for research-backed nutritional products. Their guiding philosophy, Science First, is demonstrated by a commitment to research-driven products, synergistic formulations, and meaningful quantities of therapeutic ingredients. Find them at designsforhealth.com. We're also sponsored by Dr. H. Rejoint. Dr. Robert Hadaya, a pioneer in functional medicine, has formulated Dr. H. Rejoint, an herbal muscle and joint supplement that normalizes the molecular function of TNF-alpha and NF-kappa-B, the so-called grand central stations of inflammation. Doctors, including Jack Kornberg and Bob Lerman, formerly of Metagenics, have said it's revolutionized their treatment of joint and muscle discomfort. For more information about Dr. H. Rejoint and our professional program, go to rejointyourself.com. That's R-E-J-O-I-N-T, yourself.com, and use my discount code, Dr. Kara. That's D-R-K-A-R-A. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I am Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, and today I am so Happy to have Dr. Sydney Baker with me. Um, I know that I will learn much from our conversation, and I think that you'll uh, enjoy it as well. Dr. Baker is really a pillar of our integrative slash functional medicine world and has much to offer us clinicians. Uh, Dr. Baker is a former faculty member at Yale Medical School, where he received his medical and specialty training in pediatrics. He's a former director of the Giselle Institute of Human Development. Dr. Baker's practice has gradually shifted from pediatrics and family medicine to treatment of adults and children with complex chronic illness. Uh, in private practice in Sag Harbor, New York, he's the author of Detoxification and Healing, Child Behavior, and We Band of Mothers Autism, My Son, and the Specific Carbohydrate Diet with Judith Chintz. Also with John Pangborn, PhD, Autism, Effective Biomedical Treatments. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Baker. Thank you, Kara. It's, it's great to have you here. And, you know, I um, just kind of thinking about our conversation today, I was just looking at my dog-eared copy of, of Autism, Effective Biomedical Treatments. I'm, I'm sure so many of my friends and copy, colleagues have, have dog-eared copies of this book as well. I mean, you've done, you've done so much in the world, you know, of autism and just really furthering our knowledge about it. And I know uh, we'll talk about that a number of times today, but just, you know, what are the first words to an autistic child and his parents when they come visit you? What are your first words? How do you approach? My first words are, would you like to get on my swing? I have a swing on a very robust rope that goes up to an anchor 30 feet above the ground, maybe even more. So it gives a very wide swing, and uh, the swing is made of rope and wood. It's a very sturdy thing that, in which a person can have a very comfy seat, feel very secure. And um, I invite children to come straight from the car to the swing, although most people have come a long distance, so they have to stop and pee first. But uh, <laughs> after that, they're taken care of. The, the swing becomes the center of our focus. And I put the child on the swing with uh, various means, but usually uh, I, demo, I demo at first so that they see how I look on the swing, uh -huh. uh, which is actually pretty impressive because it gives a wide, a very wide swing. Yeah. And, uh, and then they want to get on right away. So they, they get on with help from parents or just me. And then I test their interest in a little swing or a big swing. Most of the children sooner or later want the big swing, a big, big push. And I um, do that, inviting them to visit a nearby planet, which invites some recognition from the parents, not necessarily the children. But I get to see something about them, and that is the beginning of a process in which I do my job of seeing people in ways that allow them to see themselves through my eyes. 
mm-hmm. and then become perhaps better at being themselves. Wow. And I say, when I say better, it's because on the swing, I get to see something about children that almost always represents their strengths. Mm-hmm. And so that when they get down off the swing, I can say, Judy or Charlie or whoever it is, boy, you were great on that swing. You're a terrific swinger. Yeah. And I'm so proud of you. These children have often sat through conversations about themselves in which all sorts of negative attributes have been paraded before them. And Mm -hmm. so they have a pretty strong impression through both verbal, nonverbal, and just plain life experience that they have a lot of problems. Right. And um, so in my questionnaire, the first part of it is, let's tell me all, all your child's strengths. And the first part of my contact with them is to focus on something in which the kid is strong, and then he carries that into the and into my office, which is in my home, so it makes this kind of an arrangement much easier than if I had a, some kind of suite on a 34th floor of a building. And then we go on with the day. Uh, but that focusing on strengths, I think, is the, is the, the thing that we all should do with children. Um, and um, let them see themselves, the good side of themselves, through our eyes. That's, uh, that's, that's I want to go swing on your swing. Sounds like a really <laughs> great welcome swing. Anytime. <laughs> You're welcome. It is, it's, it's, it's a thrill. There's a swing I bought in San Francisco years and years ago, and it's been outdoors most of the time for the last 30 years. Uh-huh. And it had, had a repair done, but really, a sturdy thing. It was built in a uh, commune in. I think South Carolina back in the days in the 60s and boy they did a good job and there's been a lot of joy experienced on, on that swing. God I love it it's just it's just so it's very inspiring I mean not just for kids but some of the adults who come to us with you know living with chronic illness for decades and sort of just being re- reminded of you know their essential self you know who they are yeah. underneath the illness so it's really lovely. Yeah. Thank you. So h- how did you go from board certification in pediatrics, and you did a mini-residency in obstetrics as well, to becoming what you call a non-specialist? How did you get to where you are today? Well, I think it all began with the wife of my wrestling coach, who <laughs> was one of my surrogate fathers after my father died. And she uh, had an experience with doctors that made her keen to put into my head as a student at Exeter um, the idea that um, I should be able to, to, to deal with people with all different kinds of problems and not be a specialist. That was, I, I sort of went over my head at the time, but I guess it landed eventually because right. that stuck with me. So I, I, I was going to become a psychiatrist in medical school, and then I realized that psychiatrists couldn't touch people. I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when I took a pediatric residency, I thought I'd stay with that. But then uh, I was alarmed by the relationships between obstetricians and pediatricians in the delivery room, and I was interested in becoming a neonatologist, so I thought I should find out where babies came from, and I took a mini-residency in obstetrics and then joined the Peace Corps. And after two years in the Peace Corps, I became, um, I guess you might say, I developed self-confidence. I had experiences in which I took chances. Um, one might see it that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, things worked out well. So I, I got, I, I guess you'd say, I lost my timidity, which is something that I learned in, med- in medical school. My mm. faculty members were wonderful people and great teachers. Yeah. But each of them had his or her narrow focus, and so if you ask them about something outside of his or her field, they say, oh, oh, I don't know, go ask the dermatologist. And uh, in, in the Peace Corps in Africa, I was in one of the poorest countries of the, year, of the world, and naturally I had to rely on my wits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I found that my wits seemed to work pretty often, even when I went out on a limb. And uh, so that gave me some self-confidence that I brought back to being chief resident in pediatrics after the Peace Corps at Yale. And from there, I had, from the Peace Corps, I experienced, I became interested in, in information technology. So 
a long story, but it seems mm. like a weird place to, to yeah, learn yeah. study. But uh, we'll, we'll go into that. So I thought I'd like to learn something about uh, information technology. And um, the dean of the medical school was very generous with me, and I got an appointment as an assistant professor of medical computer science with um, appointments in pediatrics and obstetrics. And uh, I'd done well in medical school, so people thought I was smart and capable and so on and so and, and that I would someday be a professor. Well, uh, he brought from California a, a wonderful man named Shannon Brunges, P-R-U-N-J-E-S, who was an expert in the adrenal gland and um, was also a very, a very keen uh, computer person, I, you might say a geek. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in the Yale environment, it was helpful for him to have somebody who knew, this, who knew the Yale system pretty well. I was a Yale undergraduate, Yale medical student, Yale resident, and so on, and now I'm the Yale faculty, and I had an uncle who was a professor at Yale, another uncle who was chaplain at Yale for 30 years, and I was named after. So Yale was home territory to me, mm-hmm. and people coming from outside often didn't understand the politics that easily, uh, although... If they hadn't taken a course in arrogance, they'd have a hard time. <laughs> well, they got, um, so got Shannon. And Shannon, when I was getting my hands around information technology, uh, he uh, told me things that we can talk about later. But I, from there, I, uh, I asked her, I gained 50 pounds <laughs> uh, uh, in a sedentary job, uh, having lunch every day with a friend of mine. Um, I realized I couldn't see my feet anymore and um, didn't know where they were pointed in the wrong direction. And I, and I said my brother had needed some counseling and he, about what he should do with his life after leaving the Navy. And I said, well, find people you like working with and keep and, and and something that you enjoy doing, something you're good at. I turned that around on myself and I said, well, the people that I like are people who like taking care of patients. What I'm good at is taking care of patients. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that's what I want to do. So uh, I went into a family, and so I went, I went to, they, they were starting a not-for-profit prepaid health plan in New Haven. And when they got it all together and I had come on board as the pediatrician, they said, gee, the, the enrollees want a family doctor. What's that? Because this was from Yale. You didn't find many Yale, Yale-type family doctors. So I right. said, okay, that's what I want to be. I took my OB and uh, training and my pediatrics and my interest in people in general. My little bit of maturity got from the Peace Corps went into that, and, and that's how I became a and I con- confirmed generalist. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, eventually I became interested in chronic illness. But that's how how I got out of Yale and being into a non-specialist. That's uh, that's a an interesting uh, an interesting journey of expansion. God. I um and and you know I think this your 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 journey has well not I mean obviously you've learned a lot but you've also taught us along the way and you know you have such a nice you know you, you pay such exquisite attention to um you know the patients that you work with uh, and I know you learn a lot from from your patients uh, and it just I know it influences your own process of expansion so can you tell me about uh, a patient from uh, whose care you learned the most important lessons? His name, his first name is Walker. And uh, he came to me when I was opening, I was starting out in my family practice. His mother and father were having a divorce. His mother had a serious problem with alcohol. And uh, he was in distress because of the situation in his family. Mm-hmm. He came to see me every month, sometimes every two weeks, and we talked. Now, he was five years old. Mm-hmm. You don't sit and talk with five-year-olds, but you did with him. I didn't play games with him. I didn't play marbles. I didn't sit on the floor and do various games that we used to do with children, drawing pictures and whatnot. We sat and we talked. We talked about how he felt when this is what was going on. And at the end, he would say, thanks a lot, Sid. I feel much better now. Can you imagine a five-year-old? Jeez. When he was 10, five years later, I was no longer at this clinic and uh, was at the Gazelle Institute, so I had, I had no longer been his 
day-to-day patient, but his family, we stayed in touch, and his family called me. They had been admitted to one of the hospitals in New Haven, and he had a, uh, a, 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 a tumor in his uh, throat. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, this uh, had carried a pretty grim prognosis. He was being then cared for by a committee of doctors at Yale uh, in oncology and surgery and so on, radiology. And I was invited to participate with them uh, in um, Okay. I was invited to participate in meetings of this group uh, since I had this special relationship with them. And he had a terrible time with chemotherapy, and it just made him sicker and sicker and sooner than later. It was decided by the committee that we should just leave him alone and uh, let things uh, develop because he was in such misery from the treatment. It wasn't having any effect on his tumor. At that point, I sat down with him and I said, well, we're going to stop treatment because it's making you so sick, and we'll see what happens. Um, and it might be that uh, you get better just because of good luck, but on the other hand, it may mean that you're going to die. And if you're going to, then there's this discussion that we should have about that. Uh, and, uh, well, you let me know when he was going to go off to the Cape with his dad. I came back from the Cape, and he was in pretty bad shape. And to make the relationship long story short, uh, the call came one evening on a very rainy thunderstorm day in Haven that he was dying and he wanted to talk to Sid. So I went over and I talked with him and I, I said, um, I sat on his bed and he was in very bad shape. He was bleeding out through his gut. And I uh, explained to him uh, that when you die, you are welcomed in a a uh, new place, which is not scary. You're not alone. Uh, you're welcomed by something that is like light, and you get to have a conversation with it, and uh, so that you shouldn't be afraid. It was a much longer story than I'm telling you, but that was the gist of it, sort of the, the dying experience that I'd learned about from other patients. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, he, he, and it, his question was, well, that, does but did my mom and dad know about this? And I said, yes, they know about it. I told them when I'd be telling you, but they thought since I'm your doctor, I should be the one to tell you the story. And so he said, thanks a lot, Sid. I feel much better now. Hmm. Uh, his parents sat with him, uh, and he died about three hours later. And they were preparing his bed and straightening things out. And he was lying there dead. I mean, his mom had, his new mom, his stepmom had medical training, so she knew a dead person when she saw one. And um, as they were, were straightening his sheets and getting everything sort of neat, he sat up in bed and he said, Mom, Dad, I've been there. And it was just like Sid said it would be. And I told them I didn't want to go to sleep I didn't want to die tonight because of all the thunder and lightning. I was afraid, and I wanted to wait till morning. And um, so then he went back to sleep, and he died in the morning. Uh, I think that uh, I learned more from that patient than I'll ever learn from a lot of others because uh, it had to do with not only my capacity to communicate with people but about a certain aspect of reality, which is... Uh, obviously very important for us all to understand. Right. Right. Um, About, like, understanding that aspect of reality, um, you know, about about an individual's choice in their process. Um, What are you... Well, I think think the reality I'm speaking of is the realities of our day-to-day existence that we, we take in with our senses, but that there's another reality called a spiritual reality, mm-hmm. which is ever-present uh, and um, which uh, intrudes in our consciousness from time to time in small ways and sometimes in big ways, as in this, in this case. But without uh, understanding that there is such a reality, I think it makes us handicapped in having a realistic vision of the total reality of, of life. 
And uh, nothing could have given me a more indelible picture of that than what Walker told me. But I mean, this experience, obviously, I'd read about it, and I'd heard this kind of thing from other patients and in quite poignant ways. But after all, this was a, uh, a, a once-in-a-lifetime chance for me to glimpse uh, the other reality through the eyes of this boy who uh, had uh, been my friend. Yeah. I appreciate that uh, reminder quite a bit. I know, you know, me with my sometimes excessively linear mechanistic thinking, I, um, I, it, it's helpful as, as a clinician as a, and as a person to, um, to just be reminded of uh, the fact that there's much, much more going on than what, than what my senses may uh, perceive at any given time. There, so you're a mentor to many of us, um, and I just, I so appreciate learning from you whenever I have that opportunity. Um, and you have your, you have your own mentors. Um, can you talk about some of them and, and some of the things that have shaped you from their teachings? I was a junior at Yale, I was reading about Darwin, and I thought, well, if you could get away with taking five years off to travel around the world, I could maybe take one year off, and it wouldn't do me too much harm. And I knew I was going to be going through the medical tunnel, and it would take many years, and I thought this was my chance to go out and see the watery part of the world. Uh -huh. I ended up in, in Kathmandu, Nepal, working with a doctor named Edgar Peller, who had been a cardiologist in Wilmington most of his life, but he went out there to have a little shot at being in the, the missionary system and to see it, the world through a different geography. And so we, we took, we, he, I tagged him around behind him and we worked together in these little clinics in the valley of Kathmandu, so wonderful Nepalese people. Mm -hmm. And I was there for three months and he would turn to me after every patient. He said, Sydney, have we done everything we can for this patient? He said so in, in a week way, but not in a creepy way, just that it, that it came out as a kind of a comment that, uh, that really uh, branded me, it branded me, and it made me go to medical school with a different mindset than I was to be taught, which is, have we done everything we can for this disease? Mm. And so, so as, you, as you know, I haven't escaped from that. I never tried to. Uh, I got it through medical school uh, talking the talk. But I still carry with me the notion that the, the, the patient is the focus of treatment, not the disease. And that has um, many implications, but that was the lesson I learned from Edgar Miller. Second one, the Shannon, Brenda's, the, the, my, my professor of medical computer sciences, where I worked with him for two years as full-time faculty and many years after that as part-time faculty. And we designed a system, an information system for caring for medical information. Still, I still work on that. And uh, but he said, uh, if you're going to get uh, computers to uh, deal with medical information, you have to get the information into rows and columns. And that set me upon a way of thinking about data that got me involved in looking at. Uh, gathering data and putting it into a multi-dimensional space, which then makes clustering and analysis ever more interesting. So um, that's a big lesson that I learned from Shannon. And then the other person that impressed me most, and I only knew him slightly, but I knew him well enough so that he knew me when I come to California every year to take courses at Stanford called um, Basic Science for Clinicians. And Linus Pauling and a bunch of other members of the, of the Stanford faculty, I think there were three other Nobel Prize winners, uh, held forth and gave us a lowdown on biochemistry mm. and, and astrology <laughs> and cosmology and, wow. and embryology and every kind of thing. It was really a, just a terrific thing. And it was, it was February 29th, 28th, I think, was Linus Pauling's birthday, so we had a chance to celebrate that as a group. And that was lots of fun. And what, uh, and I was afraid of biochemistry, really. I, I just thought it was too much. You know, my graduate student teachers in medical school and other places 
it made me feel like, oh, it's just, you never get your hands around biochemistry, minus polysome, but it's simple. And he, he demonstrated just so eloquently how simple it really is about, you know, it's all about gaining and losing electrons. Right. And uh, he made me, he got me to, to overcome my fear of biochemistry. That's great. That's a really great story. Um, so you're a practitioner, but you've published some original... Oh, shoot. So, Sid, you're a practitioner, but you've also published original research uh, based on the website you founded, Autism360. It's a great website and an amazing resource. Can you talk about that, talk about your findings and what you're doing over there? Well, uh, the first word is grief because Autism 360 is holding up for lack of funding. Oh, no. But the, the work that we published um, was based on what I had started back in the 19, late 1960s with Shannon Bunges at Yale, which was thinking about medical data in a structure that permits uh, analysis in a different way and to, to allow clustering so that it could be a place where people would go to find others like me. But like me is not under a diagnostic heading, but under the granular details of their um, symptoms mm -hmm. and lab tests and so on, as, as expressed in the in interaction between the website and the individual. And uh, as, as you know, I think the funding for autism became uh, slow in developing because this uh, autism has been such a completely misunderstood and controversial, so to speak, a problem. But finally, enough heat was produced to get different people in research behind looking at autism. But of course, what happened was a lot of the money went into people who had one horse stables and they had they already knew how to analyze for this or that or were interested in this or that, and so they took their this or that, and they applied it to autism, and they published it. But it often was not based on what was the most curious thing about autism, but what was the, what would reflected the curiosity of the investigator. Mm. One of the curious things about autism is there are four times more boys than girls. Yeah. And so what's that all about? And there was very little research done in it, a commentator on the, that situation commented as being the elephant in the room. Here's this massive uh, difference between boys and girls, and what's that all about? So I uh, began um, to look at our data and look at what are the differences between girls and boys, because we had the granular data on about 3,000 boys and girls from all over the country. Mm -hmm. And well, what are their symptoms? And I had asked a room full of my autism colleagues in the ARI think tanks that we had, mm -hmm. how many of you think the boys and girls are very different? And everybody said, they raised their head, oh, yeah, the girls are really different. I said, in what way are they different? Well, then nobody could come up with an answer, nor could I. Nobody could specify even one symptom that was associated with the female gender. Hmm. So I thought, well, that's a good place to start. So I did that, and I published a paper showing what the differences were. In fact, there were very few, and that the ones that were there were very prominent. In other words, they stuck out in the data like, a, like four sore thumbs. Mm -hmm. So then we looked at, um, we, we, we got a new batch of data. This was over a four-year period, so we had data from 11, 12, 13, uh, 10, um, 11, 12, 13, no, 10, 11, 12, 13, 2010, 11, 12, 13. So we had four years of data, and, and we got the last two years in this final batch. We thought, okay, let's look at some stuff over these years. First thing we did was to say, okay, well, one thing we, we want to, one thing about data is to be careful about consistency. So let's see, what should be consistent over those four years? So we looked at the male-female ratio, and all of a sudden, in 2013, it was 3 to 1, not 4 to 1. I thought, oh, God, something crazy about our data, some kind of flaw. We looked at it very carefully, we being um, Andrew Milovoyevich, the dad of a, a, a in Canada, who was a uh, research statistician. And it turns out that there wasn't a flaw in the data. The data had changed. And what we showed was that in 2013, there was a sudden change, trend, not a shift, but a sudden trend. And, and on the graph, it looks like a, 
not quite as steep as a ski jump, but it's a very, uh, uh, and we have a straight line with a very, uh, very good statistical um, establishment of the consistency of the 4 to 1 ratio mm -hmm. over 10, 11, and 12, and then suddenly in 13, it goes plummeting down to less than 3 to 1. Hmm. And we published that along with evidence that the the symptoms of the girls were becoming more more uh, prevalent. Uh, the symptoms also began looking more like the boys in the areas that we had identified before as, as showing their differences. And then Andrew, who is a terrific partner in all of this, as a statistician, said we should look at the girls' data in 2012 and see if it shows a wobble, because when a complex system begins to shift, the data begins to wobble, and they look at the look at the climate change. So as the, the complex system and the climate is changing, and we know it's going to come sometime to an even more sudden shift, and, and anticipation of that right now, we're experiencing a wobble in the weather. So with the, all these storms and everything, is a little more crazy than it was when I was little. So we looked at the girls' data, and sure enough, the girls, the, the standard deviation of the girls' data was extremely larger than, very significant, statistically significantly larger, I should say, in the girls in 2012 compared to the boys. So they were wobbling in the year before they took this plummet. It was really a remarkable uh, thing to observe. And this came from a, a robust set of data, set of observations from input for data from all around the country. Mm -hmm. So we had a national, sort of national geographic distribution, which the CDC doesn't have that have sort of sampling areas in certain locations. Right. So we thought it would, this would be um, greeted with a certain amount of enthusiasm by the scientific community. Instead, it was total silence. <laughs> and um, so a lot of people don't know about this. But it showed the, 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 uh, the access um, in the data to this kind of vision of, the, of what's going on in a very complex system that I think will continue to be valuable. The underlying technology is an invention that I made early on, and uh, it's called metagenesis, and I'm hoping to redevelop that now in a, under a new roof uh, coming forward. As Autism360 has called it in the data, it's been given to Autism Research Institute. So, um Will Autism Research Institute just continue to publish on the Autism 360 data and kind of crunch it and look at it, or will you continue to use that those data? Um, maybe. Um, it's a matter of resources, and uh, it depends on the priorities of Autism Research Institute, but it will be available to people who have sort of not-for-profit standing and uh, I know one in, in England, uh, Jeremy Nicholson, who's mm -hmm. one of the world's best data people, has, has, has offered uh, to um, have a look at the data once we've got it packed up, and that's all happening in this, in this month. Okay. So, so people can't upload data at the Autism 360 site anymore? It's not active? Sometime in the next, sometime in the next month that will stop. Okay. All right. Well, you know, needless to say, to, to, needless to say, it's something that makes me very sad. But uh, I can't be kept too wound up with sadness when there's lots of work to do. Right, right. Well, I'm. I will certainly support you as best I can in getting the word out. Um, if there's anything I can do, or clinicians listening. Um, any comments in that, like for folks listening, or what we might do to support you in? Furthering this? Well, um, uh, stay tuned. I, I, am, I, I have a new friend who's, who has a website um, that I think will uh, be good for not just for autism, but for all kinds of chronic illnesses. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, and we want in the in the coming months uh, to test the site. It's really a beautiful thing. Okay. Um, a site of giving users access to all kinds of information that parents of autistic children would like to have. Mm -hmm. And he's done a really good job with it. And that uh, then is, makes a good marriage with metagenesis, which I think we should be able to perfect. But this is in its planning stages. But he and I are getting along very well so far, and we're looking for funding and 
And uh, but coming back to the autism data, uh, if anyone has a uh, uh, an interest in looking at the data, they can contact Autism Research Institute, and I'd be glad to help them do that and suggest what you know what they would like to look at. And the the data is really it's all in the I mean, it exists in different files, but it's been consolidated into what counts is accounted for by two or three big Excel spreadsheets, and these are then become quite uh, available. So, looking at things the way I did has treatment has treatment uh, responses in there, and uh, and all the things that are on the website, which shows when they when someone puts in their data and have at least 15 profile items and one strength. Because we always have to have the strength in there, uh, they uh, can then get they uh, see a cluster in it on the screen of the computer that shows the people who are most proximate to them in the, in the hyperspace where these data exist, and then they can draw a circle around the data that they want to compare. So they might get 40 other children who are like them, mm -hmm. uh, not just as you know under the heading of autism, but under the granular features, yes. and then see what things were good for that that group. And they can spot in the list of things, some of them, you know, gluten-free, casein-free diet, and that kind of thing, but then they'll spot something on there that they hadn't thought of, right. uh, and that's always helpful. Right. So it's that kind of, that kind of a thing. Yeah, I was, I was over but, at the site. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I was over at that site today, and I did find it um, really interesting and useful to see whether response was experienced or not with the with the various interventions. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I'll certainly list the Autism 360 site and ARI's site and anything else that you'd like to see. I will uh, link to from mm -hmm. this podcast. Um, we need to uh, we need to have a, some people sign on to this thing called the Autism Exchange to uh, try to try the site out. It's quite de it's very well developed, so it's not just a, a skeleton. It's very well developed, and to get some feedback from people, it's sort of a beta test that we're trying to run now, and we'd like to get a thousand people to log on. Okay. And check it out. Okay. Okay, I can and certainly. I'll, I'll give you the the URL and everything. Okay. Later. Okay, perfect. Yep, all of those links will be there, and you know, whatever I, can, however I can support you uh, in your work, just let Good. me know. Um, Thank you. Yep, absolutely. Uh, so, just kind of circling back to some of the things that you've been uh, teaching me about, actually, recently, you you've been um, you've been exploring essential oils quite a bit and their utility in uh, in treatment. Um, I think most of us use oil of oregano and, you know, some of the various um, encapsulated essential oils in treating, you know, gut dysbiosis, et cetera, SIBO and so forth. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're stepping beyond those more routine applications of essential oils. Any comments there? I'm on a pretty steep learning curve still, but this is what I've uh, come across. First of all, I became... In, uh, impressed by stories of children with pandas mm -hmm. who had recovered, underline recovered, yeah. through the somewhat lavish use of the oils. And that data, I, I think, is solid. I think this obviously it's anecdotal, as they say at the moment, but the anecdotes are really convincing. I know, I've talked to the parents of some of these children, and I know one of the boys has recovered. And so that got my attention. So I started looking, trying to learn about the oils, and I got that's quite a bit published. I think the book that's most interesting for people to read is written by a, a, a Frenchman named Penwell, P-A-N-O-E-L. Um, and uh, it is um, one of the earlier books, but it's one of the books from which other oil-interested people have taken their lessons. And it's interesting, in the first chapter or so, he says, why can't we all get along better? <laughs> and so there's a certain thread that runs through the oil thing that involves people not getting along. But he's helped a lot to lay the, found lay the foundations. Now, the things that I learned that impressed me the most, I think, uh, in getting my head around something that I was just thought was sort of quaint and sort of oils are nice, but right. not didn't take them too seriously, but that, it turns out that if you look at this 
carefully, what these oils are, are things that plants have invented over the millions of years that were when the plants are on the on the planet without much anything like animals. And they dealt with the three things that are common to all living forms, mm -hmm. which is oxidative stress, you know, hanging on your electrons, uh, the need to stay clean, that is to detoxify both endogenous and exogenous toxins, and bugs, that is everything from prions to viruses to bacteria to funguses and worms and lions and tigers and so on as predators are, are problems for living things, whether they be plants or animals. The plants figured this out right. with these very small, like 125 Daltons, as sent very volatile, yummy-smelling uh, molecules to help with these three fundamental functions in life. And we animals can appropriate these, the, the potential of these oils for our lives because our lives overlap completely with the, the agenda of, of animal of plants, that is oxidative stress, detoxification, and bugs. Those are universal, and I think it helps to simplify some of the complicated math, maps that we see in the, um, the way of organizing uh, functional medicine, uh, which is still broken down into this organ system and that organ system and whatnot, but really beneath it all there are these three very fundamental things and the other thing that I think is important about all this really struck me when I spoke with a colleague physician in, in, uh, in, in uh, Long Island, where she said, the body treats the oils like fuel. That is, they, they, they're oils, and they're very simple molecules, so they eventually end up in the Krebs cycle pretty quickly. But on the way to the Krebs cycle, they do these chores, which for different oils with different uh, capacity, oxidative stress, detoxification, and bugs. Mm -hmm. uh, some oils do better at bugs and some better do others. But all, I think all oils participate in some way in these three different regions, which are just fundamental to the process of healing, healing in all living things. So I, I now uh, want to get more uh, in touch with the good sources of oils and um, and see if we can't spread the word. I think the people with pandas and, and other autoimmune problems really need to take this pretty seriously. Right. Well, you know, I mean, you've definitely piqued my curiosity around the, the, the pandas benefit from essential oils. Any oils in particular? Can you give, can I nail you down for any details around what they've been doing in pandas? Well, I'm trying to come up with a list of uh, 10 or 12 with uh, some of my, um, my teachers, uh, but they um, they are oregano and uh, frankincense, and um, I don't have the list right in my head, but I can shoot it to you. And um, and my own experience, just my take, take for example, my experience with frankincense. If somebody asked me six or a year ago, where do you get frankincense? I said, I don't know, go to the Bible. Right, uh, right. I didn't think there was such a thing. Right. It's a health, I never looked at the health food store shelf to see there was frankincense sitting there. <laughs> and I, uh, not too long ago, I was, I was shepherding a very large salad bowl from one side of the kitchen to the other without noticing that the door to the uh, dishwasher was open. And it, when my body finally noticed it, I found myself in midair. <laughs> and the first contact with Earth was the sharp corner of the, uh, the, uh, the, the wooden cutting board of, the, of, one, of the, one of the shelves is made of the, the board, the butcher block. And I hit it just on my zygomatic arch, mm. under, my left, under my right eye. Mm. And blood and pain and semi-consciousness were all over the floor. I'd never been hit so hard in my life. And it mm. opened up a wound, which was... Enough so that normal people would say, well, I have to go to the emergency room and get huge stitches in this. I know, I know better than that. But I really thought I would be um, a mess for some time. I put frankincense oil on it, and within three days, it was just about gone. I was just stunned wow. at the way I recovered from this. And I, now I realize that the reason that they decided to drink frankincense for baby Jesus' birthday was that the stuff was really expensive, like gold, because... It was hard to get, but when you had it, you could heal wounds, which naturally people had a lot of those. Heal wounds uh, with remarkable um, 
with remarkable success. So uh, that was a personal experience that really got my attention. Mm -hmm. And now the more I read about it, the more I think that these sort of targeted, simple uh, approaches are one level. But there's another level, which I think is embraced by Yehuda Schoenfeld's quote, uh, that he talks about when he gives a lecture to certain groups, that he did to one of my groups, um, in the first sentence in one of his big books on autoimmunity and infection, where he says, until proven otherwise, all chronic illness is autoimmune. Mm -hmm. and, and he's probably the most, he's the foremost immunologist in the world. So that, when he says that, you have to take it seriously. And he says, until proven otherwise, um, reading the 52 chapters in this book written by experts in immunology and infectious disease from around the world, will come to the conclusion that until proven otherwise, all chronic illness is infectious, including autoimmunity. So he's setting up this, this kind of sandwich between the, the, the microbiome and germs underneath and the, the, the other top of the sandwich is autoimmunity. Mm -hmm. And within the, the embrace of these two observations, you have a, a very unified understanding of how one can approach chronic illness. Mm -hmm. So that the, ocean, the notion that pandas is the only target for the oils is wrong because autoimmunity is a thread, big thread that runs right through autism. And basically what Schoenfeld is saying, it's run through all, in all chronic illness. And the, the role of germs in all of this is that germs are the most likely candidates for being the impulse mm -hmm. or the stimulus that begins to set up some case of mistaken identity Right. in which the immune system decides to go after itself or after things like pollens and molds and things that are really not that noxious. Right. So I think that uh, if you look at the, the oils through that lens, you see that they have a tremendous capacity for, uh, for doing good in all kinds of things. Same thing with my HDCs. Yeah. Oh, so, so give his name again, and then um, yeah. I'm almost talk about HDCs a little bit too. Yeah, Yehuda, Yehuda Schoenfeld, S-H-O-E-N-F-E-L-D. It's S-H-O-E-N-F-E-L-D. And if you Google him, um, if you go on Amazon, you'll find his books. They're quite expensive. But the one on, on immunization, and infect, uh, immunization and chronic illness uh, is, um, is in there. Immunization and autoimmunity is the title of the book. And it's, it's just it's just pretty recent. And okay. that book uh, is um, the first three chapters are worth the hundred bucks you pay for the book because it really nails the whole question of what's really wrong, what's the, the key point, and well, one big key point in immunization has to do with the toxicity of aluminum right. that's used as adjuvants in immunization. And he and he. He comes out very strongly there, but of course, his, his position he has to uh, not be too strong. But he's, he encourages the world to take this seriously and get on the stick and find some ways of immunizing people without poisoning them with aluminum. Yes, yes. Um, so, so before we before we talk about HCCs, I just wanted to ask you, you know, just your your thoughts, observations, experiences around delivering essential oils. I mean. You know, I'm always prescribing them internally, although, you know, I have a diffuser at home. I love the scent of, you know, the various citruses wafting through my house, and I use one. I use a citrus. I, use, I have a little bottle of lemon for the last 10 years. I've been smelling it periodically. It just sort of helps me think, but you used it topically in your accident, and we give them internally, and, you know, smelling is also considered to be pretty powerful delivery of the molecules. Any um, thoughts on those different routes? Well, let's say 40, uh, each drop of oil contains about five, I mean, 10 to the 19th molecules. 10 to the 19th molecules in one drop. It's a lot of zeros. And we know that one, one drop, well, a lot of zeros, and one drop will find its way through uh, the uh, 10 to the 13th cells in your body because it diffuses in your body just as it does in air because your body is made of fat and the fat is no barrier to oil. So if you rub it on your feet, it gets in your brain in about 20 minutes. Wow. But when, uh, when I, uh, I had, was giving a talk at the MAPS conference a couple of years ago in Orlando, and I got I picked up a terrible stomach bug, 
and I won't elaborate on the details of it, but it's pretty disgusting. Yeah. And I tried all the conventional things, all the things I knew to get rid of it, and it wasn't working. And um, it was quite disconcerting because it went on for months, and I had, you know, had my pooch tested and all that. Mm-hmm. Finally, I got some this stuff called Digize, which has uh, artemisia oil in it. Mm-hmm. And bingo, within a few weeks, I was on my way to recovery. And, and, uh, so that was really the, the turning point. And, just like, and I put about five drops under my tongue three or four times a day. It's amazing the economy of these oils. I think maybe I was overdosing myself, but I was pretty desperate. It all worked. So I think that um, the... Then the question is, what about the sources of oils? And I yes. have become a little disconcerted with um, the the marketing techniques of one of the couple of the major, major and very good brands of oils. Not that they're not good oils, but the, I think that this is something about the um, the marketing scheme that is a little disconcerting. So uh, now I have a new friend who's in the oil business in Canada. And um, I, we're going to try to come up with a, um, a an economical access to a family of ten or so, ten or twelve oils that he agrees. I mean, he has a company that makes hundreds of different kinds of brands of oil. I mean, different kinds of oils and markets them in Canada. He's a real. I mean, he's a real expert in terms of understanding the the, the gathering and sourcing of them. And I've tried them, and I, there's no doubt from just smelling them in comparison to other oils that they're really good stuff. And I think that there can be a way to develop this medically uh, that is not too confusing to the users uh, and with guidelines that are based on what has been learned from the pandas crowd and, um, and do some good with the oils. That's terrific. All right. Well, I definitely. I'm going to meet with him. I'm, I'm going to meet with him uh, in California at the end of the month. I'll keep you posted. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay. Talk, talk about uh, talk about your HDG, HDC friends. HDC. H is for Hymenolepis. D is for Diminuta. And C is for Cystisocoides. Or coins. and these HDCs, which I call little dudes, <laughs> or premobiotics or primobiotics, is a trademark that I got on them. Um, is um, is an answer to the question of how come people in Africa, living the old-fashioned way, yes. don't have allergies and autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. This is something that I observed when I was in Africa in 1966-68, and it was quite stunning. If you talk to also when you talk to missionaries who've been there for 20 years, and they say, "Well, I've never seen an African with A B C D E F G," and A B C D E F G are all the things that we have in, in the West. Yes. So the answer to this puzzle was worked out over the ensuing 40 years or so, and became conventional knowledge, not just the speculation. But the difference was, of course, not genetic, geographical, or the water supply, or anything else. It was the presence in the, the digestive tract of people living the old-fashioned way of what now we should call uh, mutualistic organisms, yep. which in, in the medical school we learn they're parasites. But obviously, there's some parasites you don't want, no matter what, but there's some that you can use as, as parasites per se, like some hookworm, and there's some that you can use, borrow from other species, like the Tricurus suis ova, the TSO, come from pig whipworms, Yep. which were first demonstrated as effective in curing ulcerative colitis by um, uh, professor of, uh, of uh, gastroenterology um, in uh, Iowa mm-hmm. uh, in about 16 years ago, and he's still working on it. Uh, and, he, and his work then inspired a search for various things. And I ran into William Parker, uh, Duke University, when we were both talking at a meeting a few years ago, and he was talking about the HDCs, and he was then saying, I naively said when we had made friends over dinner that I thought the kind of worm that would be sort of make that win the contest for the most effective and efficient one would be some kind of round worm. It was a really uh, very naive statement on my part. But he said, No, no, it would be some kind of tapeworm, probably. And so uh, when I said, Well, 
uh, where we stayed friends. And after a year, he said, uh, I think we figured it out. So I went down to Duke, and I learned how to um, do what I'm doing now, which I have a little ranch in the clean room um, where I raise the HDCs and send them out and get people, uh, my patients and the patients of other doctors, I don't send them to the public directly, uh, get them the HDCs to help them with uh, their autoimmune problems because it, it, that is the, the, the happy and sad thing about it. It's sort of a cure-all because it works for everything, but not, of course, in everybody. This is nothing that will work on everybody, but the results are really stunning. And the best thing I've ever learned, and it's also a lot of fun. I dissect these on Tuesday mornings under the microscope. They're cute. <laughs> Draw them up in a micro pipette, put them in some saline, and sift them around here and there. And um, and it's uh, I have one assistant who helps do the dissection. Now she's trained another person because we're getting more and more uh, people who want them. But it is um, it is. Uh, transformative in some people, absolutely transformative. Let me just take an example. Uh, a patient, the husband of a patient of mine I've known for many years, she's a woman with a yeast problem going back to, the, to the, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And uh, he's, a, okay, he's a guy, so he doesn't you know, pay too much attention to doctor things, but then he got uh, uh, a Hashimoto's thyroiditis, mm-hmm. and it really it ruined his golf score. Yep. And also didn't make him feel well. But golf for him is a serious thing, um, that is, he wins tournaments, although it's a hobby, he's a businessman. And his golf score went up, which um, was very distressing to him. And he started on the dudes, and uh, six months later, I checked in with him, and he was winning a tournament, his golf score was back down, and his antibodies were normalized, and he felt fine. And that's, you know, that's a typical story of a, of a kind of winner. We have, it works with alopecia, it works with all sorts of autoimmune problems. Mm-hmm. And it's worth a try. I mean, they, if you look at the formula for making medical decisions of what's the benefit, what's the risk, what's the odds, what's the stakes, and what's the cost, um, the risk is as close to zero as you can get with anything medical, and the, and the stakes are usually high for people with any kind of chronic autoimmune problem. And so um, it turns out to be something where the best test to find out if you need it is to try it. And so I've become, I'm, try, I'm trying to teach other doctors how to do it, just get the word around. And I have, I've trained two, two, people, two doctors now, one from Canada and one from uh, one Jerry Carson now from uh, the Midwest. And, uh, and I hope to have others come and, and learn how to, to uh, start their own ranch because... Um, it's, I think, uh, an important an important transition to wherever this is going. William Parker thinks that, I mean, he doesn't think, he knows that this should be in something that's kind of in the food or in the drinking water is available to everybody because if, it, if that were the case, the, the toll of chronic illness in our culture would go way, way down. So as you can tell, I'm pretty, pretty excited about it. It's, it's, and, it's, and it's a lot of fun because the... The, the ranching, once you've got, you know, it's like everything, any new thing like that, you have to learn from some experience. But I learned a lot from William Parker, and now we're, we're learning on our own and, and have this lovely ranch, a clean room, and uh, the dissection is, is tedious, but it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've enjoyed the photographs, and I've tried HDC myself, and it was most uneventful for anybody who might be a little frightened. <laughs> <laughs> swallowing yeah, some of the dudes. You know, it, it, it's funny. It's funny to be in the marketplace with uh, rat tapeworm stuff, but of course these HDCs are not themselves worms. If you're a rat, you, you ate one, you get a worm. But uh, if you're a human being, chances are vanishing. You know, and even if you did, if you had a couple of tapeworms, they'd probably be good for you. For in the model that we're describing, so something that's that low risk. It's just you have to get past people the sort of yucky um, connotation that goes with anything that is alive and comes from a different species, although people eat oysters, for God's sakes. Yes, right, right. It takes a certain, certain shift in one's perspective. But, um, but they, uh, they are, when they, when they work, they are truly miraculous and, and at a very low risk and cost. Well, 
I'm, I'm excited to uh, continue to, to use them in my practice, and I will, uh, I'll, I will make sure that I get all of these myriad um, names and uh, websites, and including info for HDC. I'll, I'll get the details from you, and I'll uh, include them in this podcast. So anybody who's right. interesting, interested in uh, tracking down the, the many um, pearls that, that Dr. Baker has left with us, I'll, I'll make that material available to you, and you can, of course, always... Uh, reach me through um, this podcast or uh, through my website. Dr. Baker, it's been a pleasure talking to you, um, as always, and just thank you so much for this great podcast journey today. Well, on, on my behalf and on behalf of your listeners, our listeners, may I say that I am so thrilled that you have come into the landscape with your brilliance and your energy and your imagination and all the things that you're doing to move the, uh, the cause of, uh, of functional medicine or integrative medicine or whatever we call it forward. You're just uh, turning into a really, really important person for all the good reasons, and I just love you. Thank you, Sid. <laughs> I love you, too. And I look forward to that swing date. <laughs> yes, you're welcome to come anytime. Just don't come on a rainy day. I won't. Okay. okay. Take care. Okay.